You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Let's take a moment and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the sweet, precious name of Jesus, dear Lord, and we thank you that you love us. Lord, we thank you that your love never fails. It, it, it never goes out on us. It never runs out. It never leaves us abandoned. That because of your grace and your mercy, and I, dear Lord, I've been reminded even through the Psalms this week that the Israelites, the Jewish people would often cry out, His mercy endures forever. They talked about that and they talked about His uh, abounding love, His limitless love, and that His mercy endured forever. And so, Lord, we praise You for that. And the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we thank You, dear Lord. We ask You now, dear Lord, to empower Your Word. And we pray, dear Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would take control as it has done in this worship that it will continue to do in the preaching of Your Word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And if you have a Bible, if you don't get near somebody who does, and, and um, if you could or take that uh, Bible there, there may be one up under your seat there. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. That's in the New Testament. The Gospel of Mark chapter 16. And we're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 8. Now, let me, let me say real quickly, and I've, I've had a cough I can't seem to get rid of, and thank you, Reggie, for the water. And I even um, have even had to keep a piece of gum in the side of my mouth to help me keep from coughing, so you pray for me today. In Mark chapter 16, and, and real quickly as we kind of um, think back to the situation, the circumstances... This young radical Galilean, this man by the name of Jesus, this man who along with 12 men around him has basically shaken the entire world, has been beaten, has been crucified, has been placed in a tomb, And along with the Sanhedrin and the Roman officials, they have secured that tomb to ensure that nobody would steal his body. Now, here we pick up in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, and let's stand in honor of God's Word. Maybe that would be good this morning. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right hand, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. 
You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. In the NIV, those next three words are so critical and have shaped the course of history. Let's say them together. He has risen. In the African tongue of the people of Shona, the Shona people in Zimbabwe, you've heard me often say, they would say, Jesu arimu Jesus, he is alive. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. That's interesting, isn't it? Because who denied Jesus? Peter. Judas betrayed him and he would commit suicide. Peter denied him. And the Bible said that he went out and he wept bitterly. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out. They fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We love you. We give you glory for already how you've spoken to us. And we pray, dear Lord, that the power of your Holy Spirit would continue to speak. I pray, dear Lord, that you would cleanse and that you would use your messenger. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. You can be seated. I, I've told this story, but years ago, Sheila and I and the kids were on our way to England. We were going for the IMB, the International Mission Board. We were in Atlanta airport, and I was a little frustrated. We had, um, instead of flying from Atlanta straight to London, we were flying to Amsterdam with a layover and then over to London, and I was a little bit frustrated. We were flying KLM. Uh, you know, we had four small kids, and so, you know, a little bit irritated, you know, and, and but anyway, and I went down, I, 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 you probably remember this, I went down and looked at the British airplane, and it looked like a brand new plane, and then I went down and looked at the plane we were getting ready to get on, and it looked about like a crop duster. I mean, that thing was beaten up, bruised up, been around a long time. And uh, so I was even more frustrated. Sheila and I got on this big, massive jumbo jet, begin to secure the kids, begin to put away stuff, sat down next to Sheila, a little bit irritated, when all of a sudden I heard this voice. It was a voice that I had heard many times. No, it wasn't Jesus. But it was a close friend. I, I looked at Sheila and I said, do you hear that voice? She said, what? I said, listen. And all of a sudden... I looked up and there was Adrian Rogers, the pastor, he's now with the Lord, the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, and he was with his wife Joyce and they were stowing away their luggage and getting ready to be seated. Now they went back there and sat down right in front of my boys, well my kids, and Jeffrey and Ledge, I believe, were behind them. In fact, I said to the boys, I said, whatever you do this, I went back there. I kind of got down there real close. I said, this is Adrian Rogers behind you. Do not kick his seat and be on your best behavior. We are Southern Baptist missionaries. We can't mess this up. Now, I remember eventually I went back 
Adrian Rogers and I began to talk, and, and we just hit it off. And he said, now listen, after supper and everything kind of quiets down, he said, why don't you come back here and we'll, we'll talk for a while. So he and I went back near a window in that big jet, and uh, he looked over at one of the stewardess, and he said, uh, would you mind fixing us a pot of coffee? Now it's 10 o'clock at night. And so she fixed us a pot of coffee, and we drank that whole pot of coffee and stood there and talked for over three hours, about three and a half hours. We laughed, we cut up, we got to punching each other, looked like a couple of old football jocks just having a good time. But in the course of that conversation, I began to talk to him, and he began to talk to me about a book that we had both read, Erwin Lutzer's book, Christ Among Other Gods. And we begin to get into a discussion about a man by the name of Anthony Flew. Now, Anthony Flew is a noted atheist. And Anthony Flew is not a, a believer at all. He stands opposed especially to the Christian faith. And so in Lutzer's book, and Rogers and I begin to talk about this, was about Flew's conclusions and, and his atheistic beliefs. Now let me read some things that he said. Because he's complaining about you and I. He's complaining about Christians and followers of Christ. Andrew, uh, Anthony Flew, a noted atheist, said this. Number one, he said, There's no evidence for an invisible, intelligible, elusive God who tends the world. His existence cannot be detected with our knowledge and our expertise. Now, I thought that was interesting because he forgot what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. My friend, we are unbelievably, fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist said. But Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 1. Secondly, Flew went on to make this statement. He said, speaking of us, he said, believers, followers of Christ are unwilling to allow any existence to count against their faith. They refuse to stipulate the conditions under which they would surrender their beliefs. Nothing is allowed to count against it. In other words, what Flew was saying is that you and I as Christians were very narrow-minded. He went on to make this statement. What would have to happen before you were to disbelieve in the existence and the love of God and in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, and Luther made this conclusion, Luther made this conclusion about Anthony Flew. He said, every religion of the world, listen, has a responsibility to answer that question. Now let me read it again. What would have to happen before you would disbelieve in the existence of God, in the love of God, and Christ. Finally, fourthly, he said this, and I think this is critical. Lutzer concluded after, re, after talking about Anthony Flew, he said, what evidence would you accept that would dismantle your faith? And he made this statement. He said, we cannot give our religious convictions a privileged position that is closed to rational investigation. Let me read that again. Lutzer's conclusion after dealing with an atheist, a noted atheist, he said to you and I, he said, what evidence would you accept that would dismantle your faith? 
In other words, cause you to walk away from the Bible, the church, and the Christian faith. He went on to say, we cannot give our religious convictions a privileged position that is close to rational investigation. Now, I want you to take your Bible. And from Mark, I want you to go to the right, and I want you to look at 1 Corinthians, because Paul answers Flume. Paul answers this noted atheist, Anthony Flew. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when you get there, just say amen, and we'll know that you're really fast. And boy, you are faster than the preacher. You should be in Bible drillers getting a scholarship and going back to school. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul said, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than how many? Five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, Then He appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to who? To me also, Paul speaks of himself, as to one abnormally born. Now skip down to verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is what? In the NIV it says useless, in the King James it says vain, which means foolishness. And so is what? Now let me read verse 14 again. And if Christ has not been raised, if there is no resurrection, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Now verse 17, you there? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sin. Let me, let me read to you something. And, and to me, this is a truth, and it kind of sums it up, what Paul was saying. A man who claimed to be God, a man who claimed to be God, and his name was who? Jesus. Was killed. There's only one problem. A man who claims to be God, if he in fact is God, you can't kill God, right? You with me so far? Unless God were to allow you to kill him. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down freely. The Bible doesn't say on the cross that he died, The Bible gives strange strange language there. It said that he gave up the ghost. He gave up the spirit. You see, you could not kill God in in his incarnate form, which is Christ, in his flesh, in his physical body, unless he allowed you to do it. You could not keep God dead And that's what the resurrection is all about, right? One writer said this. He said, the resurrection proves the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. What Paul was saying to the church at Corinth 
If you can produce a body or a proof to the contrary of what we preach, we will discontinue and Paul said we'll go home. Paul said, though, you got a problem. We've got over 500 witnesses, most of them alive. We've got the apostles, they're here. And Paul said, hey, on top of that, you got me to deal with. And this one man was so impacted by the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he shook the entire world of his day. So Paul says, take your, take your best shot. I want you to look at Matthew. Take a, take a left and, and go to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, watch what Jesus said. Now, let me put this in perspective. Back in November, I went to the Mississippi Baptist Convention and spoke out asking our denomination to consider the state flag and to understand that it hurts a lot of people. And maybe we need to pray and lead out in an effort to ask our state to reevaluate our flag and, and ask ourselves the question, is this the best symbol to represent the state of Mississippi and, and our future? You know, we talk, and I told you, I talked about when the apartheid was defeated, they came up with a new flag in South Africa. When we declared our independence from Britain, we, de- we had a new flag. And, you know, you may not agree with that, and that's up to you. But imagine that I, that I told you before the Mississippi Baptist Convention, I'm going to do this. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to make this motion. After I make this motion, there's going to be a deranged skinhead, KKK member. He's going to shoot me in, in the head, and I'm going to drop dead, and I'm going to be dead. Now, Sheila, y'all are all going to mourn, and oddly, he's going to come get my body, and I'm going to, I'm going to be in state while they do a little investigation. And then at the point of my service, my funeral, I'm going to sit up in that tomb out of that coffin in the middle of the service and I'm going to step out of that, that coffin and I'm going to preach my own funeral and I'm going to be alive. You would say, man, the audacity of you to think that you're going to do such a thing. Now look at Matthew chapter 12, 39 and 40. Well, verse 38, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be, in, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's talking about being dead and being buried. Now flip over to 1621. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, listen to Jesus again. From that time on, this is after they've made a confession, after Jesus has asked these men, who do men say that I am? Some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah. Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 21 Jesus, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, that he must be what? Let's say it together. That he must be what? Killed. And on the third day, what? Be raised to life. 
or to be resurrected. David Jeremiah said this about Easter. He said when Jesus Christ was resurrected and he walked this earth for the next 40 days, he had a mission and his mission was this, four things. He said number one was to convince his followers that he was alive. In Acts 1, verses 1 through 4, the writer there, Luke, the physician, the traveling partner of the Apostle Paul, Luke said this to Theophilus, which was, a, which was a ruler in the Roman government. When he sent this letter to Theophilus, he had already sent the Gospel of Luke. In Acts, he sends the second letter. He said to Theophilus, he said, Listen, Jesus gave his followers infallible proof. That's how he worded it. He convinced every one of them. You remember when 10 disciples were gathered? One was down at uh, Starbucks. He was having coffee that day. Thomas wasn't there. When Jesus showed himself to his disciples, what did he allow them to do? Feel the scars in my hands. See the scar in my side. Look at my feet. He said, listen, men, look and believe. Thomas wasn't there. You remember what Thomas said? No way. You guys have been smoking some of that funny weed. I don't know what you're doing, but there's no way that I'm going to believe that. I don't know what happened to you guys while I was out getting coffee, but I can tell you this much. I'm not going to believe it unless I have the same opportunity to do what you did. I'm not going on secondhand information. Listen, Jesus appears again, looks at Thomas and says, Thomas, See my hands, see my feet. Put your hand in my side, Thomas. Believe. Believe. David Jeremiah said that Jesus convinced them so soundly that every single one of them would die but John the Beloved. And the only reason John the Beloved lived was because from the cross Jesus said, Behold this, your mother, behold your son. And he entrusted his mom into the hands of John the Beloved. You may say, well, he had four brothers, he had sisters. Why didn't he entrust them to them? Because all of them would die. None of his siblings believed. They thought he was crazy. They went to pick him up and carry him away. But every one of them not only believed and were radically transformed and changed, every one of them were murdered and martyred for what they believed. Every one of the disciples, but the one he designated to take care of his mother in Ephesus, died. You may die for a lie, you will not die for what you know to be a lie. You may say, well, what about a terrorist Muslims? They believe it to be the truth. He convinced. He commissioned. He sent them out with the information. John, Peter, Paul, repeatedly, Paul would say, I'm on trial for the resurrection of Christ. That's why I'm on trial. He was beheaded by the Roman government because he refused to denounce the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were not only convinced, they were commissioned and they were committed. And finally, he says, David Jeremiah said, they were confident. When you and I are convinced, when we're commissioned, when we're committed, the truth is, and I wrote this down, the more convinced you and I are of something, 
In this case, the resurrection, the more confident we are to share it, to stand for it, stand behind it, and even to die. Is that not true? Now let me ask you something, and and I won't keep you too long, but let me ask you a question. If this is all true, then what's wrong with the church? Is that a fair question? If this is all true, then what is wrong with the church? Now, back in Matthew, I mean Mark chapter 16, go back there real quickly. Mark chapter 16, you remember what we just read in verses 1 through 8? When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, bought spices so that they might do what? What were they going to do? That's all. Everybody look this way. What were these women going to do? They're going to take care of a dead body. So there's only two points here real quickly. First, they went to anoint. First of all, they went to anoint a dead religion and its founder. That's what they went to do. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus was dead. He was in, he was in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The Romans had secured it. The Sanhedrin had secured it. They had put guards there. He wasn't supposed to be alive. Isn't that strange? They had heard Jesus' teachings. They had sat at His feet. They had fellowshiped with Him. And yet they went to anoint a dead body. We just read back in Matthew that what did He say? Matthew, Matthew, listen, he made it clear. He said, listen, let me, now, this is what he did. Courtney would be like you taught in elementary school. Courtney's a teacher. When you hold the face of a child and you say, listen, look at me. Stay with me here. Are you looking and their eyes are darting? No, look at me. Jesus would hold the face of his followers and he would say, listen, I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be in fear. Let me tell you exactly what is going to happen. I'm going to be arrested. Are you listening? Peter, Peter, look this way. Look at me, Peter. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten close to death. And then I'm going to be crucified. Three days later, I'm going to be resurrected. Mary, Martha, they had all heard him talk about that. They had heard him often speak of his death, burial, and resurrection, but they didn't believe. They were going to anoint a dead religion, its founder. Now let me put that in modern terminology. They went to church with all of their stuff. They had their Bibles unopened and undigested. They had their little book bag. They had their Sunday school books. They had their offering envelopes. They had their snacks if the preacher went a little long. They got their bulletin at the door. They came with everything but faith. How many of you today entered this church, came on these grounds, and thought to yourself, I am going to have a life-changing encounter with Christ? man told me yesterday out here, he said, Brother Jeff, two weeks ago, my wife had a life changing experience. She had a theophany with Christ a couple of weeks ago in our service and she hasn't been the same since. 
You see, it's not just about salvation. These, these women went with all the things needed to anoint a dead body. They were going to, in essence, disguise the decay. Because that's all they could do. They couldn't embalm. They could just cover and masquerade the odor of death. Let me ask you something. Are some things dead in your life right now? Your marriage? Your future? Your educational pursuits? Your parenting? Your family? Your life? Is it dead? Let me ask you this much. There's only one that ever had the audacity to make this statement. The enemy, Satan, Diabolos, he comes to kill, steal, destroy. But listen to the audacity of Jesus. But I come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. So if something is dying in your life, are you trying to masquerade the smell of it? Or are you going to the only one that is the Arthur of life and saying, Lord, here I am. Here's my marriage. Here's my home. Here's my finances. Here's my health. Lord, I am on the brink of losing everything. Lord, here it all is. You see, the danger is, is that you and I can do what Paul warned Timothy. He told Timothy, he said, they'll not, in the last days, they'll hold to a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, of such flee away. Listen, I told you last Friday, not this past Friday, the Friday before, we went to help my daughter Amy in Tupelo move. She has five kids. One of them was in school, all the rest of them out. One of them, the youngest is 18-month-old, little petite, little blonde-headed thing running around there. In a moment, in the middle of that moving, all of a sudden, Amy did something that every parent knows immediately. It's like somebody throws ice-cold water over you. She said, where's Issa? Where's Issa? And I told you, I said, I began to run. I ran through the house because the house was empty. I, I began to look at all the, and, and they were, and, and there were two men from their church that were driving off with a truck and a trailer. And her husband was in his vehicle and they were all getting ready. They were all getting ready to pull out. And so I looked down these bedrooms, no Issa. Look back the other way, no Issa, this little 18-month-old. And I scream out the front door. I'm not worried about the, what the neighbors think. I don't care what anybody thinks. You stop! I look like a madman, shouting, stopping traffic. Screaming, I ran to the corner. They sit on the corner, that rental of, a, of two streets. And from the corner, I begin to try to assess the front yard and the backyard, still trying to tell the men, do not move those trucks. Where's Issa? Where's Issa? Screaming like a maniac. There were some not screaming because they didn't love Issa. They didn't even know Issa. They didn't even know what the excitement was about. When all of a sudden Amy 
she had crawled into a storage shed in the backyard, came out weeping and crying, clinging and said, I got her. And I just wept and wept. And then I just held her and held her and wept. Why? Because I love her. A lost world can tell how much you love Jesus by how you behave. They went to anoint. Love drove them to the tomb, but not faith. They were prepared for a burial, not a beginning. Did you hear that? That's the danger of the church. We disguise every Sunday. Man, and listen, we can do it now. We don't need the Holy Spirit. We can crank up the smoke, the sound. We can put on a show that'll match anything that God, that God was just about. Our attitude is that God was doing on Mount Sinai. We'll just make up our own Mount Sinai. Not here. Let me tell you, if you're thinking about coming to this church very long, you'll either have to change or you can't stay here. Well... Love, guilt, loyalty, I don't know. Something drove them to the tomb, but it was a place of dead. Now the second point, and I'm trying to move quickly. I wrote this down. I want you to listen to this. Calvary, the cross is the love of God and evil in a violent exchange. Our enemy gives to Christ what he believes to be the knockout blow. He kills the Messiah. He kills the Savior. The fine print of sin is death. God told Adam, he said, the day you eat of this tree, you'll die, die. Not only physically, but spiritually, you'll be dead. But Easter is God's knockout blow to the enemy. You can't kill God. That doesn't, that doesn't mean anything to some of you in this room. Right now, it's just sitting there on the surface. You can't kill God. That's what Easter is. They said, it's finished. We're done. We're through with this radical Galilean. We've put him away. We've silenced his voice. But Easter is God's knockout blow. And that's why Paul would say, oh, grave, where's your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? A worker bee, once he gets rid of that stinger, he can't hurt you anymore. He may be a nuisance in the car, and you may be screaming and hollering, but the bottom line is, once somebody's taken the stinger out of that sucker, there ain't nothing left to him. You know what Jesus did? He took the stinger out of sin, and that was death. You can't kill God. That's why he called Lazarus out of the grave. Adrian Rogers, when he died, he looked at his wife and his family gathered around him and he smiled and he gave a thumbs up. And he smiled and said, I'm in a win-win situation. R.G. Lee, the great preacher of Payday Someday, his predecessor, 
R.G. Lee's deathbed was so earth-shattering that it shook Adrian Rogers, Billy Graham, and a host of godly men that I could give you a string of names. D.L. Moody, when he died, sat up and looked at his wife, and he said, I see our grandson, and I see heaven. Bill Bright, when he died, his wife said, finally, Bill, go home. And Bill died within seconds after she said that. George Whitfield, when we was dying, was told from an antebellum home in Georgia, said George Whitfield, the great reformer, the great preacher, said, George, there's over 10,000 people gathered in the front yard of that antebellum home. George Whitfield got up from his deathbed, walked and stood at the staircase and began to preach the gospel. And it came out of that antebellum home and went across over 10,000 people hearing the gospel. Jim Elliott, when he and four men were killed down in Ecuador, refused to fire a gun as they were hacking them to death. When those people who had hacked Jim Elliott and those four men to death, men like Nate Saint, those missionaries... After they killed them, you remember Elizabeth Elliot and her son, her daughter, and another missionary. They went back in, took the gospel, and the men who had killed Jim Elliot baptized Jim Elliot's daughter. And after they learned English and began to talk, they said, Their death? They said, When we put them to death, they said, All of a sudden, the sky grew dark. And they said, The trees begin to shake. And begin to sing. And they talked about the trees singing. Why? Because five martyrs. Stephen said when they were killing him, he said, I see Christ standing at the right hand of the Father and he's standing. You know why he stands? He always stands when a martyr's coming in. No wonder Paul said, you can't kill God. You may say that doesn't mean anything. It does when God's living in you. That's why we have the ability to say, even as we approach death, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You can't kill God. Secondly, and in closing, if they had any faith at all, I would call it a fretting faith. It was anxious. It was worrisome. Their discussion was about the stone. Now stay with me here, and we'll close in a moment. This is critical. Their discussion was about the, was about the stone. The stone was massive. There was no way these women could move it. So they're going along with, their, with all their bags of stuff to anoint a dead body. They're just dragging. They're hopeless. They're looking at each other and saying, it's over. This past week, we had another grandson born. That makes 11 grandkids. And uh, we, I, I had Caleb and, and Sheila had Ethan. They're the older brothers of this newest gr- grandson. And his name is Titus. And Caleb was taking it horrible. Caleb, he's a mama's boy. He loves his mama. And he didn't understand his mama having that other baby. And he was upset. You could see it all over his face. And I, me and him, we're, we're standing at the window. 
and we're looking in the window and Caleb boy's face is hanging down. His daddy's in there with a the baby. And I looked at Caleb and I said, son, your party's over. <laughs> Let me tell you something. At the tomb of Jesus Christ, the party wasn't over. It had just begun. These women were worried about a stone. Now look this way. A stone, an obstacle that Jesus Christ had already moved. Isn't that great? I wrote this down. There's a principle here. Because I'm sure that Satan, I'm sure the devil, was shouting in their souls, what's the bother? Give it up. There's no need. He's dead. Now listen to this. Here's the principle. God, for some of you in this room, God has called you to a task, a work. But you have an enemy in your head that is shouting every reason why you ought to turn back, go home, quit, give up, quit trying, it doesn't really matter. You may say, how do you know that? Because he shouts in my head too. I want to tell you this. Walk it out. Keep going. Keep going to the tomb. Let me tell you what he's going to do at the tomb. He's going to kill the unbelief and he's going to resurrect the faith. For some of you in this room, the truth of the matter is is that you are tired, you are discouraged, and you're wore out. And as far as you're concerned, there's an obstacle ahead and you're thinking to yourself, I give up. I'm tired of trying. I'm going to throw in the towel. Listen, he's already removed the obstacle. And when you get on up the road, you're going to see that. I want you to stand. When I, when I wrote the book, Killing the Church, I did an interview with a station in, in Texas. I, while doing that interview, had an opportunity to hear a woman by the name of Chelsea Brown. I mean, Chelsea Barnes. Chelsea has written a book called Jesus to the Rescue. In the book, she tells the story of her, of her son, three-year-old Daniel. Daniel, at, a, at his birthday party, with ten of his cousins with him, and maybe the Sunday school class of the church that he went to, Daniel drowned in front of all these other children. And it happened so quickly. Chelsea and her husband said that their lives were devastated. Every parent knows what that would feel like if you're a parent. They said their world collapsed. They said two weeks before in Sunday school, they said that Daniel was given a paintbrush and was painting a picture. Each of the kids had painted a picture. And the pictures were left there to dry. And this three-year-old painted a picture that made absolutely no sense. But after his death, the pastor's wife, walking through the Sunday school, walked by the picture, and the picture had been the picture was upside down. Somebody had laid it on the table, and now she was looking at it from the right angle, right side up. This three-year-old Daniel, two weeks before his death drew a picture of a swimming pool, drew a picture of an angel coming down, 
drew himself in the shirts and the shorts that he was wearing that day. Drew a picture of his lifeless body at the bottom of that water and an angel scooping him up and carrying him up toward heaven. There's a yellow figure diving into the water. It was his dad. And you want to guess what he had on? Yellow. Chelsea Barnes said this, Jesus to the rescue is the name of her book. Chelsea Barnes said this, she said instantly, she said it was like God had breathed life into my husband and I. She said my pastor's wife came running, said look, look at this. And Chelsea said we began to jump up and down and celebrate because we knew that our three-year-old son had made it clear, I'm getting ready to go to heaven and everything is all right. The resurrection, you can't kill God. And the Bible says, Paul would shout it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And one day you and I, every one of us will be where Adrian Rogers was on our deathbed if the rapture should stay and we'll look at the people gathered around us and we ought to be able to smile and say I'm in a win-win situation here let's pray our heavenly father we come to you in the name of Jesus Lord we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your goodness we thank you that in the at a critical moment in history that God, you, as the Africans say in Zimbabwe, that you wrapped yourself in the flesh of man and you entered into our creation. And for three and a half years you taught. No word ever written in a book. The only time we have a case of you writing is in the sand and the wind carries it away. But we praise you, Lord Jesus, that when they beat you, when they crucified you, when they placed you in that borrowed tomb, that they were not able to hold you there, that sin and death was not able to hold you there, and that three days later that you were resurrected and you gave infallible proof to a lost and dying world that you have victory over death and sin. And we thank you that, dear Lord, under the conviction of sin that we can become followers of Christ, that we can receive you as our Lord and Savior, that we, through childlike faith, can say, Lord, I am a sinner, but come into my life and forgive me of my sin and today be my Savior. And if you can't kill God and Jesus in that incarnate form, in that fleshly vessel, then when Christ is living in us, that ultimately there is the promise of eternal life in heaven with Jesus. And one day, a bodily resurrection, as the Bible tells us. 
So we pray, dear Lord, if there's one here that does not know you, that today, this day, that they would give their heart and their life to you and begin to serve you from this moment. So if they're lost, may they reach out and say, Christ, come into my heart, forgive me, come into my life, change me. I give everything to you today and you are Lord. And I pray, dear Lord, if somebody prays that prayer and they meant it, that they would come and make it public. Because to whomever you called, you called public. Others may need to rededicate, recommit. This may be a theophany for them. It may be a life-changing moment spiritually. Speak to us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.